Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through His Word. Be blessed. Today we're going to be looking at part two of the prophet Yoel. And we stopped last time in verse 17 of chapter two. Now we're not going to go back and rehash everything that we said, but just to set the context for today, we're looking at a natural disaster that has hit the Jewish people in the southern kingdom, I believe this fits the time frame of the southern kingdom, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and we see locusts have come and destroyed the agriculture of the land. And it's not just a little bit of devastation. Everything has been devastated by waves of locusts that have come in. The prophet Joel recognizes that this is God's doing. And as we said in the first part, there's not really any detail of a specific sin that has taken place within the land, except we see in the first chapter, he, he, he prophesies, O drunkards, awake. So there is a reference to being drunk uh, with wine. However, when we look through the first two chapters, there's not any mention of idolatry, not any mention any mention of immorality or bribes or or anything of that nature so what i believe what is taking place now it is an assumption but as we're trying to look at it from original intent there could have been complacency spiritually within the southern kingdom and god is waking them up and you see all of these verbs of action And this is what the prophet Joel is trying to do, recognizing that this is God's doing. This this is God's army that has come up from the north that is devastating the land. And the only response for the people, for the elders, and all the inhabitants of the land, everybody, is a day of of national repentance before God. And he's calling the priest. And he's calling them to stand between the altar and the porch, the entrance into the holy place of the temple, and to stand and cry out to God. He's asking people to cancel their weddings on that day. If you have nursing infants and a mother has a lot of responsibility with small children, it's what's more important than that is bring the infant, cancel your wedding, Come and let's have a sacred assembly, a solemn assembly, and cry out to God. And instead of a curse coming upon the land, they're believing that a blessing will come because of the character of God. And he's calling the people to come to God because he knows God's character. And that leads us to verse 18 of chapter 2. And we're going to try to finish this Uh, prophecy today. We looked at Obadiah 845 BC and now Yoel 830 BC, approximately around that time. That is the traditional dating of these first two prophets. And let's continue to read from verse 18 to 20. All right, Joel, um, verse two, or chapter two, verse 18. The Lord 
Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and then, and you will be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea. And its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Look at the first word of verse 18. Then, then the Lord will be zealous for his land. So this is preceded by what, Alan? That that this is coming about. The repentance of the nation. A national repentance before God. And then when you look at verse 19, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. Now, when we look at this in 9th century B.C., and we look at all the times that there has been a national repentance before God, yet we also see the devastation that has come in the future. I'm thinking of Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, that's around 445 B.C., that he calls the, the remnant that have come back into the land, And they're in the land, and he calls them for a time of repentance. And you see them coming and standing for six hours as the law of God is read. And people are saying, Amen, praise the Lord, lifting their hands, clapping their hands, falling on their faces, uh, crying out to God. And we see that national repentance that takes place. But after that, we we also see that that is short-lived. When we see how short-lived it is in the fact that Nehemiah uh, leaves for a short time, and when they go back, they return immediately back to the, to the sin that they were caught in before his coming. So we don't really see a national repentance, even in the time of Nehemiah, that truly comes from the heart, that impacts their society, and it is sustained on the long term. Now, let's go a little bit earlier. The greatest king, according to the law, is Josiah. Josiah came into Judah and became king around 626 B.C. And he began to institute or reinstitute everything according to the law. He tore down the high places. He he tore down the altars, everything within the land, and he reinstituted the law. And he is described as the greatest king according to the law that Israel ever had. But you saw one man doing this and a nation coming under his authority. But as soon as he dies, everything comes back. The high places are rebuilt. Uh, The statues to Molech right outside of the city of Jerusalem. We see that described. We see the child sacrifices. We see the people not really having a true repentance from the heart. So when I look over the whole history of the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, the Jewish people, the city of Jerusalem, I'm not so sure that this national repentance has taken place yet. Because look again at verse 19. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. So in the time of Jeremiah... God used the Babylonians 
to come, in the time of Josiah, I should say. Ba- uh, Jeremiah was the main prophet during that time. He uses the Babylonians to come in in order to execute God's judgment. This, this was an army from the north. Then we, we look at the time of Nehemiah. They sign a document that they will not go back to the sin that they were in, but they broke it quickly. And we see later on in 70 AD that the Jews are scattered among the nations again. 135 AD, they're scattered among the nations again because of their sin. The context that we're dealing with here from verse 18, after a national repentance of the Jewish people, the city of Jerusalem, he says, the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And listen to this again. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. We cannot say that is a fulfillment of that prophecy in the time of Nehemiah, in the time of Josiah, in the time of any national repentance before God, because we see the history of the Jewish people. So this is a time that will follow a true national repentance that's coming from the heart where they cry out to God and God's going to hear them, God's going to, going to protect them. And what I'm saying, I don't believe that this national repentance has taken place yet. And just hold that thought as we continue. Verse 20, but I will remove the northern army far from you. Some believe this is talking about the Babylonian invasion that is coming. But this is looking at a time when the northern army is going to come and also at a time where uh, Judah and Jerusalem will never be a reproach again. But I will remove the northern army far from you and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea, probably looking at the Dead Sea, and its rear guard into the Western Sea, the Mediterranean. And its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. So we're going to see a destruction of an army that is coming from the north and it is in response to that. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land. After this takes place, this is what the prophet Joel is saying to the people. Um, Chapter 2, verse 21. Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. And do you see the totality that God is going to do it once and for all? 
And so this is why I'm really looking at these verses at the end of time, at the end of the age, at the end of the culmination of all things that God is doing through Israel, through Judah, through the Jewish people. And so here you, can ne- you cannot separate the people from the land. That's one thing that's very important. And what God is saying that when this repentance takes place, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. And you see the totality of the language, the land will be blessed of God. If the land is blessed of God, then the people will receive that blessing. They will have the early rains, the latter rains. Now, in early Pentecostal movements, they interpreted this as the early rains was the coming of God's Spirit at Pentecost, and the latter rains was the 20th century, almost 2,000 years later, where God began to pour out His Spirit again upon the people, the Spirit of God. But this is not what it's talking about contextually. It's talking about the blessing of the land. And most of the Pentecostals looked at that. You had the early rains and the latter rains, and there wasn't anything in between. And so for all these centuries, there really wasn't a move of God's Spirit, except in the early rains and the latter rains, saying that there wasn't any rain in between. That's not how the rains work in Israel. Once the rains begin around November, uh, December, sometimes or late October, the rains, the early rains begin, and it is setting, letting the people know that the rains have come. And from that time all the way till the end of March to early April, coming up to uh, what we know as Passover, you have the rains. It's a continual rain, from the early rains to the latter rains. But what this is dealing with, it is dealing with God's blessing upon the land and upon his people that after we see, let me say it in this way, God's response to this repentance, and remember it's a repentance of all the people, that they're going to repent before God and come to God from the heart and they're going to cry out to God, then God is going to be zealous for the land and he will have pity on his people. God's going to respond to their repentance for the complacency or whatever is happening among the Jewish people. God is going to respond in the way that he blesses them. Now let's continue here because then it comes verses 28 through 32 that we're all very familiar with, these verses. And it will come about after this. And we must think about what is after this, after the repentance, after the blessing of God where they will never be a reproach to the nations again. I believe it's probably on the same thought processes of after this repentance before God. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh or all mankind And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes." 
here we see the day of the Lord, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Here, I believe, it is not speaking about the day of the Lord, of the natural calamity of the locusts within the land, but this is after a response to a national repentance before God from the heart. And it will come about after that, about, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. And the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And we're going to look at this, verses 28 through 32. So one thing I'm going to explain, try to explain about prophecy, about double fulfillment, or seeing the principle fulfilled and then later on being fulfilled in a greater way. For example, you and I, Alan, are saved, but our salvation is coming. You and I stand complete in the Messiah. However, our completion of all things is coming in the coming of the Messiah. You and I, when we understand that what God has done, that we are holy before God, but at the same time, God's holiness is coming in the Messiah. There is a day that we walk by faith, but there's a day that the kingdom of God, that we're going to stand face to face, and we're going to walk not by faith, but by sight. There is always this understanding the kingdom of God is now, and the kingdom of God is coming. And when I look from the first coming to the second coming, I see it as the coming of the Lord and two-pronged. One, bringing God's mercy, God's grace, God's forgiveness, and also his judgment and his vindication of God's people against the wickedness in the world. And so when we look at Peter on the day of Pentecost, when he stands up, when the 120 are filled with God's Spirit on the day of Pentecost, or in Hebrew, Shavuot. On that day, he says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Yoel, Joel. He's looking back to this prophecy. Now, is he misquoting? Is he taking this out of context? Because really, we're looking at the day of the Lord here. But something to remember is that from his first coming to his second coming, in this two-pronged understanding of his coming, that's all the last days. And I believe Peter was 100% accurate understanding Scripture when he says this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Because this is the beginning of God pouring out his Spirit upon all mankind. It's not necessarily saying that this is in complete fulfillment here, but this is what Joel was prophesying about. Now, what were the 120 doing before the coming of God's Spirit upon the Jewish people? Every, every one of the 120 were in Jerusalem, and they were all Jewish that we know of. Mm-hmm. What were they doing? They were there in an upper room for 10 days. Yeah, they were, they were hiding. They were scared. Well, think about it. What did Jesus say to them? Wait for me and uh, wait for me and wait for my spirit to come upon you. Right. I would agree with you. Many of them probably were uh, in confusion, 
scared, didn't know how all of this was going to continue, what was God's plan for them. But Yeshua, the Messiah, said, do not leave here until you receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the prophet Joel had prophesied, uh, prophesied about a day that was coming after a crying out to God by the Jewish people, and uh, not just from an outward repentance of showing through tradition or religion, but really crying out to God from the heart. And we know that they were in that upper room for 10 days, praying, seeking, not, seeking God, not leaving until they received what was promised of the Father. And on the 10th day, on the day of Pentecost, they be, as they were praying and seeking God, God poured out his spirit, not on all flesh, but upon the 120 Jews that believed in Yeshua, that was waiting in Jerusalem, was not leaving that prayer room, but from the heart they were crying out to God. They were determined to wait there until God's promise came. And when that happened, other Jews are seeing this, mocking them, and Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Yoel. And it was fully accurate in the understanding. This is what the prophet Joel promised, a day that God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh, and this is beginning right now. I don't know if that makes sense, but this is beginning right now. Even though it's not all completely fulfilled at this time because the prophecy is upon all mankind. These were 120 that were there on the day of Pentecost, but they, this is the beginning of God pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. And hopefully that makes sense. But I believe there's a greater fulfillment of this at the end in the Messianic kingdom with his rule and his reign that will come on the day of the Lord. And so that's where the second part comes in, verses 30 through 32. But look at verses 28 and 29 again. Let me read it. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit. God is speaking through the prophet Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. It's not going to just be upon one person at one time for a specific task that God needs to get done for his purpose, like on David or on Saul or on Elijah or on Elisha. And we can go on and on where God poured out his spirit and his anointing upon those individuals. This is the Spirit of God even coming upon the male and female servants. It's not going to be just one person for a specific task, but this is the Spirit of God coming upon all flesh. And now it is coming upon the 120. It did not just come upon the apostles or the brothers of the Lord or the mother of, of Jesus or just they just didn't pick and choose. Every one of them of the 120 that were crying out to God and praying, God poured down his spirit on all of them. And, and Scott, I'm thinking about what you're saying with this being a continual sort of fulfillment, right? And, and having different layers of fulfillment. And, and, and I just thought about, um, you know, when, when Peter went to Cornelius, 
um, you know, in that household, and the, the Spirit of God was poured out on him. And, and, you know, looking at all flesh, you know, sort of could mean Gentiles in that too, right? And sort of right. this being, you yes. know, and, it's a, and I like how it says at the end, in those days, Right. So not just the one day, you know, it's a day's plural. Right. Um, you know, so it's yes. sort of, you know, all flesh, meaning Jews, Gentiles, and then, you know, at the end of time. And everybody. jump a little bit before that in Acts 8, because Cornelius is in Acts 10. They're Gentiles, background. You know, that's their background. They're God-fearing Gentiles, mm-hmm. which meant that they probably were not idol worshipers and they respected the Jewish people. Those were Gentiles, but in Acts 8 we see the Samaritans Mm -hmm. coming to faith. So you have the Jews, you have the Samaritans, you see them receiving the Spirit of God to the point that one man is willing to give money to have that type of power because Peter and John laid hands on them. They received the Spirit of God, and and he saw it. He saw something supernatural take place. He was willing to say, can I buy this power? Then we see in Acts 10, Cornelius, while he's giving them the good news, the gospel, they began speaking in other tongues, just like the Jews did in Acts chapter 2. And they knew that they had received the Spirit of God just like they had because they heard them speaking in other tongues. There was some uniformity of what was taking place. There was a physical sign that the Spirit of God had also come upon the Gentiles. How could they deny them water baptism? at that point Mm -hmm. because they had received the Spirit of God. And that's very good, Alan, because we're seeing the Jews, we're seeing the Samaritans, we're seeing the uh, Gentiles coming to faith. When we get to Acts chapter 13 and 14, we see thousands upon, I believe probably tens of thousands of Gentiles coming to faith. And he writes to them, did you receive the Spirit by faith or by the works of the law? later on. So they're receiving the Spirit of God that's coming upon them. So it's not just upon the elders of that congregation or that community of faith. It's all of them receiving God's Spirit upon their lives. This is what the prophet Joel saw, that there was a day coming in response to true repentance and coming to God from the heart that God's going to pour out His Spirit. Peter understood this. This is what was spoken by the prophet Yoel. And you saw prophecy. You saw spiritual gifts. You see dreams. You see visions. You see the working of God supernaturally, not just through one individual, but through the body of the Messiah as the gospel begins to spread all around the world. All right. Now, you also see in verses 30 through 32... I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So we're seeing this outpouring of God's Holy Spirit in response to the repentance. But part of this is these natural disasters calamities are these, let me say here, these signs in the sky that are right before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So there is a day that is coming that I believe at the end that's part of this whole prophecy. And again, I see the last days is from his first coming to his second coming. Now, contextually, that is true. 
when Paul writes to Timothy, and he's talking about in the first century, he says, in the last days, in these last days, men will not endure sound teaching, doctrine. That's the first century. From his first coming to his second coming, we are in the last days. But here we're talking about before the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? It is a day in which God brings his vengeance, brings his justice, and everything that has been done against the people of God, he will make things right. And this is, I believe, in the context at the very end of the last days. And it will come about after about, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered by God. That there will be God's deliverance and God's salvation upon them as they call upon the name of the Lord. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, Mount Zion is the Temple Mount. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls, there will be God's protection in the midst of conflict that is coming as we're looking right before the day of the Lord where God puts everything straight. We see the outpouring of God's Spirit. It begins on the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, in the time of the first century, and it will go all the way until the end, I believe, and there will be a great outpouring of God's Spirit upon all flesh that's going to take place. And all of this is in response to repentance from the Jewish people before God. If there's any place right at the end that we see a national repentance before God in totality that's going to take place, it's in Zechariah chapter 12. And so let's go there for a moment. So we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 12. I don't do a lot of cross-referencing, but when I look at a national repentance in totality before God, I don't believe this repentance has already taken place. If it's already taken place, then the prophecy is not true because he says, I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. So we haven't seen this come about yet. We haven't seen, uh, say, in the time of Josiah or in the time of Ezra, the time of Nehemiah. We see some repentance before God, but not anything that really takes root within the heart. So when we go to Zechariah chapter 12 through 14, almost every biblical scholar sees this at the, end of all, at the end of time, before the day of the Lord comes. Chapter 14 will be a chapter where God puts his foot on the Mount of Olives and destroys all the enemies that come against Jerusalem. And uh, he will bring about his vindication. Chapter 12, let's read this chapter. Chapter 11 is probably the saddest chapter in the Bible for the Jewish people because it's a day that they reject God as their shepherd for 30 shekels of silver and God hands them over to a worthless shepherd that will not be able to guide them and will not be able to protect them. But chapter 12 is a chapter that is so incredible about God's protection upon the Jewish people in a day in totality that the nation comes to God from the heart. Let's start in, um, let's start in verse 8. 
Um, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 8. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadamarinon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemanites by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. And can you read verse 1 of chapter 13? In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. When we look at chapter 12, I encourage everybody to read chapters 12, 13, and 14 because we're, we're looking at a context at the end of time where all the nations on earth are coming against Jerusalem to destroy it. Chapter 11, they rejected God as their shepherd, but in chapter 12, we see in the context of the nations trying to destroy them in the city of Jerusalem, we see God's protection upon the house of David, and they will be like God. What I believe that this is saying, not that they are going to be God, but by coming against them, they're coming against God. And the feeble among them on that day will be like David, like David. They're seeing, you're going to see the total protection of God upon the Jewish people. God is putting this nation back together, 1948. God gave them control of Jerusalem, again, 1967. God is putting the nation back together, and Jews are coming back from the nations in which he scattered them, and it's like life from the dead coming back to life. The Jews live again. He's putting this nation back together, but it's standing together, fastened together, Exodus chapter 36 and 37, but it doesn't have life. What's going to give them life when God breathes his spirit within them? And then if you go to the end of chapter 37, you see the total understanding of God as their God and the people Uh, worshiping him, surrendering to him. They have one God, one king, and they will never be driven from the land again. This chapters 36 and 37 of Ezekiel are so important because he's bringing them back into the land for a day of redemption spiritually and physically. Not just physically, but also spiritually. He's going to give them a new heart. He's going to put his spirit within them. And we're looking at totality and language when he begins to describe it. And here the same thing in Zechariah chapter 12. We are seeing that as you begin to fight against them, you're fighting against God. Verse 9, And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. 
Every nation that comes against Jerusalem, God will destroy them. We're going to see that in chapter 14. But verse 10, excuse me, in verse 10, this is the most important aspect of what God is doing in the last days, at the end of the last days. I will pour out on the house of David and on the, inha- and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of prayer so that they will look on me. Who is speaking here? God, God is speaking through Zechariah. They will look on me whom they have pierced. How did they pierce God? They pierced the Messiah, yes. uh, Jesus on the cross. When they pierced the Messiah, they pierced God. They pierced him who brought God's salvation. Chapter 11, how did they reject God as their shepherd? By rejecting the Messiah that fully represents everything from the Father. By, reject, by rejecting him as their shepherd, the good shepherd, they're rejecting God as their shepherd. No, this is, this is incredible. I kind of got goosebumps thinking about it this way. And when you, when you, at least in my mind, when I see it, you know, there's this, everybody surrounding them, you know, in, in Jerusalem and in the whole nation, it's hopeless. Right. And then all of a sudden they get this revelation of Jesus, the Messiah, and whatever that looks like and however God chooses to do that. But they, they all see it. And then they all just have a breakdown and a weeping of, wow, we've had this and we've heard about this from you know, Christians, and we've turned away from it, and we never believed it, and then they see that it's real, that the Messiah has already come, and he's here for them now to protect them, and then it's a total repentance of the heart when they see that, and that's just incredible to And they're going to see, they're going to see that this is their Messiah. Yeah, that he's for them, and he's for them, because it's so hopeless right Right. there, and he's coming and stepping in to protect them, and when they see that, how much he loves him, how much you know, their Messiah loves them, was there for him, for, well, he was there for them, you know, God's people, chosen people, and at the end of time, mm-hmm. seeing that, I mean, that's just an incredible picture in my mind to, and, and imagine if you're a, a, a Jew, and, you know, you, you really just never, you know, you, maybe you've heard about Jesus, and, you know, you just put it off, and then all of a sudden it's revealed, this is what you've heard about your entire life of this Messiah, and he's been here and now he's here to protect them, even though they might have rejected him in their own mind or in their own heart, you know, the whole time they've been living. But at that one moment, they see it and really repent. Right. And, there's, and it's going to be a national repentance. We're going to see, as you read, I'm going to show the totality of what we're dealing with here. It's not a remnant. People have that wrong in the sense it's always been about a remnant. Even the Peter and the early Jews that believed in Yeshua, the Messiah, they were a remnant of Jews that believed and took this gospel to the ends of the earth. I mean, they they took it everywhere that they could go by God's Spirit. But at the end, it's going to be totality, and there's going to be a national coming to God. This is what we see in Zechariah chapter 12. What we're looking in Joel chapter 2 is this outpouring of God's Spirit that began in the first century that will go all the way to the end. It began with the Jews, it will end with the Jews, and it will bring in, after the day of the Lord, the Messianic kingdom where God will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. It will be the Messiah's kingdom that will rule and reign the earth, and the Spirit of God will be upon all flesh. So this is 
the culmination of several prophecies that we can see that's coming together right before the day of the Lord, God bringing his vindication against the people of God. Again, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of prayer or of supplication. There will be the spirit of God, God's grace and and prayer, true prayer poured out upon the Jewish people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of David, so that they will look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. There will be this weeping over the one whom was pierced. They're coming back to God through their own Messiah, through the one whom was pierced, the one who was rejected for 30 pieces of silver. They will say, this is our king, this is our shepherd, this is our savior, this is our Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus says, I will not come again until you say, Jerusalem. Not a few people, Baruch Habab, Sham Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Jerusalem says, come, Lord Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they will cry out for the coming of their own Messiah. He will be their only hope. This will take place after this great coming to God through the one whom was pierced. Now, verse 11. In that day, there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadid Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. That was, we believe, as a reference to the time that Josiah was killed. He was pierced in Hadid Rimon, and in the plain of Megiddo, that's where the, bar, the battle of Armageddon will take place. Har Megiddo, that's where the word Armageddon comes from. But it's a historical reference where Josiah was pierced, brought back to the city, and the city just erupted in mourning and crying out because their king had been killed. And again, he was described as the most righteous king according to the law. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of David, wives by themselves. That's how they mourn, the men by themselves, the wives by themselves the family of the house of Nathan by itself, the family of Levi, Levi by itself, the wives by themselves, the family of Shiamites by itself, and their wives by themselves. Look at verse 14. All the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves will be weeping and mourning for the one whom was pierced. And then you go to chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, in that day that God poured out a spirit of grace and a spirit of prayer, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. There will be a cleansing in the land on that day that this land will be cleansed and redeemed on that day. And it's not about a few families it's all the families in the land will mourn for the one whom was pierced. This is something you have to see in understanding prophecy. Now, you go back to the prophet Yoel. There's going to be a response to a national day of repentance that we have not seen historically yet. Because after this repentance, there will never be a day 
in which uh, the Jewish people are going to be used as an example, as an example of God's reproach again. After this repentance, after God comes to battle for them, and we see that in Zechariah chapter 14. In Zechariah 13, no longer are they going to allow the false prophets to prophesy in the land again, to be the false shepherd and to lead them the wrong direction. In fact, if they prophesy again, the Jewish people say that we will pierce you. And these false prophets, their whole status is going to be taken away from them. In fact, they're going to say, I'm an agricultural worker. I'm not a prophet. So even the father and their mother will come against their son if they continue to mislead the people. We see a cleansing spiritually of the Jewish people of sin and an impurity on this day of repentance before God through the one whom was pierced. And on chapter 14, as the nations are there to destroy Jerusalem, Judea, the people of God, the nation, God's going to put his foot on the Mount of Olives and he's going to destroy the nations that come against them. This is the day of the Lord where God's going to put everything right. And this is what the prophet Joel is saying. That he's going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. The old men will dream dreams. The young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants on that day, we're going to see the spirit of God. That began at Pentecost going to go all the way until the day of the Lord, where you're going to see signs in the sky and a day of complete fulfillment of this when God's going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And on the day of the Lord, the wicked are going to be judged. The armies that have come against the people of God will be destroyed. And we're going to see the rule and reign of God upon this earth through the one whom was pierced, through the Jewish Messiah that has brought salvation to all the earth. Amen. And he will rule. How will God put his foot on the Mount of Olives when he sends his son, his Messiah, to the Mount of Olives to put his foot on the Mount of Olives and split that, that mountain in two? And the enemies that have come against the people of God who are now coming to God through the one who was pierced, he will be their king and their Lord. They will shout out, Come, Lord Jesus. They will say, Baruch haba Besham Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And his kingdom will be established from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And the, the messianic rule of God upon the earth will come. Amen? Amen. So what I am saying is that the fulfillment of this did take place as God poured out his spirit on the 120 Jews on the day of Pentecost, almost 2,000 years ago. But there is a greater fulfillment of this when the Jewish people as a nation cry out to God and come to God through the one whom was pierced. And we're going to see totality within the nation. All the families in the nation will mourn for the one whom was pierced. And on that day, it will be like a fountain that springs forth for sin and for impurity within the land. There will be a cleansing within Israel, within the Jewish people, that will bring about God's vindication right before the day of the Lord. This, 
this fits in, Alan, completely with what the prophet Yoel is prophesying about. It is fulfilled, but it will have a total fulfillment, and we will see God pour out his spirit on all mankind. There is a day that God's spirit will rule and reign on this earth, and it will be upon all flesh. Heavenly Father, thank you that we were able to go through the second chapter, to finish the second chapter of this prophecy. God, we pray that everything that we spoke, Lord, is honoring you. Yes, Lord. And Lord, we want original intent, what you were meaning to say to the prophet Joel to the Jewish people. Lord, let that come through in such a powerful way. And Lord, let it minister to people's lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.